I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back, everyone. And today we are discussing album number 15 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. And this is Are You Experienced by The Jimi Hendrix Experience. Well, I got to just jump right in and say this was not an album I had heard before, but this is exactly the kind of album that I anticipated being on this list. What do you mean by that? An album just stuffed full of songs that I already knew. Okay. Yeah. uh, With a whole bunch of sort of like credibility. Um, uh, You know, I, I assumed that if there was albums on this list in the top you know 20 30 that i didn't know that they would just be filled up with tracks that were that had a lot of radio airplay that were um you know pivotal in my own journey through classic rock or whatever uh so you know i if i hadn't realized that i was listening to are you experienced i would have assumed that this was a hendrix greatest hits album but just there were so many tracks that i I knew before yeah and and i held that up sort of in contrast with um the stones album that we've already tackled and uh the two dylan albums i think i knew a combined three songs for those three albums oh and i guess zero for the velvet underground right Um, oh yeah and and yet those those albums are up there i think this album for me gets at uh, a little bit more of of what I think an album needs to be on this list, and that's some popularity and longevity. Um, so I'm really excited to tackle it because I don't know. I was just I've got some issues with with Jimi Hendrix just in general, and I'm not a huge fan. That's probably why I don't have this album. But this is the exact kind of album that I expected to be on this list in a spot like this. <laughs> I'm disappointed to hear you say that that you're that you have that you have issues with Jimi Hendrix and oh, but, oh, oh, but yeah. I mean we'll I'm really ex- I'm really excited to hear what they are. I really I really to... like Hendrix and and yeah, we'll get to that. We'll, okay, we'll get there. Yeah. And so you expected so what did you expect this album to be before um, you listened so to it? I... I guess in sort of doing a little bit of homework, I discovered that it's the debut album. And so I thought, I thought similarly to, um, well, I guess just coming off of the Velvet Underground a couple of weeks ago, I think I had assumed that it was going to be raw, uh, aggressive with some guitar sounds that were recognizable from uh, Hendrix's hits in his catalog, right. but not necessarily... Um, you know, prime Hen- Prime Hendrix. Prime Hendrix, exactly. Right. Which, yeah. which it is. Like, which it totally is. Uh, it's yeah. I mean, and not that he, not that he didn't do more great songs and albums after this because he did. But this is like, you're absolutely right. If you didn't know this was his first album, you would have figured this was a greatest hits or you know, well into his, into his career. It's absolutely. And I, so I, I guess I'll I'll do me now. Um, 
See, I had never sat down and listened to this album. I have other Hendrix albums. Uh-huh. And I want to say here that one of the very first CDs I ever owned, when I first got a CD player and started a CD collection, I was probably in grade six or seven. Jimi Hendrix Live at Woodstock was one of my very first CDs. I think it might have been my first. Okay. So, And I don't even know why I got it. I don't know if I asked for it at Christmas. I think an aunt... Or somebody got me a CD and that was it. And it's kind of like when you get something new or you start something new, sometimes someone chooses it for you. Uh Like maybe a team that you really like or a band that you like. This was like someone just gave it to me. Maybe they thought they liked it and thought I would like it. So it's always kind of had a special place in my heart, even though. I gravitated to other types of music that I liked. You know, I got more into punk rock and other things. I wasn't the biggest Jimi Hendrix fan, but it was a bit of a soft spot because it was one of the very first CDs that I owned that was mine. It wasn't my dad's. It wasn't anybody else. It was mine. Yep. Um, I I remember like that CD, Aerosmith's Big Ones, which I think I might have traded to you. And, <laughs> and I was just about I, to say, I got Aerosmith's big ones from a friend at a fairly young age and had a profound impact on me. That <laughs> might have been me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think Green Day's second album, Insomniac, I think those were like my first three albums. Uh, but Hendrix Live at Woodstock, which so, so, so many of these songs are in it. And I also have um, a greatest hits compilation called The Ultimate Experience, which has tons of tracks on it. i think there's like 20 or 30 tracks on it and okay. a lot of these songs are on it too so it's like i felt like i knew almost all the album like i had heard even some of the deeper cuts yeah even though i'd never intentionally sat down and listened to it so it was very very familiar it was like maybe i have listened to it you know yeah um yeah so I think I, I want to talk about one thing. A lot of people think like, you know, that Jimmy was just a solo artist mm-hmm. and kind of maybe did stuff on his own or, or had a group of, you know, studio musicians. But this listening to this again, I'm really reminded how much this was a band. Yep. Jimmy Hendrix experience was a band. There's no question that Jimmy has a lead, but listening to this mu- music, I'm hearing what a massive impact and influence the bass player and drummer have and they're also really really good as i'm listening to some of these you know drum parts and the way the bass you know kind of goes up and down and moves in and out of jimmy's crazy solos and sounds it's like you know what jimmy hendrix is amazing obviously one of the best guitarists ever but this wouldn't have been the same album without these other two guys Right, do, doing their thing very well and and very unique and experimental. Yeah, totally. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to get that kind of off my chest right off the top because a lot of people say, you know, a Jimi Hendrix album. Well, this is a band. Yep, and it's a very very good band, yeah. even though the we know the guy and it has his name. This is a cool band. So, anyways, that's just me. Well, get no, off that's, my that's helpful. A helpful distinction. Do you know um, as his career went on? Does it continue to be that way? Is that is it always the band? Uh, because he doesn't always go by the Jimi, Jimi Hendrix experience, right? The Jimi Hendrix experience did three albums, and they were within two years. You know, so this is just them, you know, pumping out a ton of music. Yeah, and they did three, and I mean, 
Jimi Hendrix died what in in nineteen seventy. So like the debut was in sixty seven, they did another one sixty seven, and then a third one in sixty eight, and two years later, you know, he was gone. He did one album after that. Band of Gypsies? It was the yeah, it was the live Band of Gypsies. It's a live album by Jim and, and the first without his original group, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. His career, which was very short, unfortunately, um, it was with this band. <laughs> yeah. Now it is, you know, it's it's a it's a band that's kind of again overshadowed by one individual, a very prolific individual. But still, I, I'm just I'm just really I guess the point of it I've just really been enjoying hearing the other players and hearing their influence here and remembering that as much as I love Jimmy and his playing and singing, these other guys are awesome and were there for most of his career. So there you have it. Yeah. Before we even get started, we should say, we should kind of talk about who is in the rest of the band. Yeah. Um, So it was a three piece and the drummer is Mitch Mitchell, which is a great name. I almost think he, he, he should be, he should really have been a jazz musician. I wonder if most of his career, he played jazz, you know, like uh, Mitch Mitchell on drums, uh, Robbie Robertson on, <laughs> who's another guy we've talked totally. to. Uh, um, and bassist Noel Redding. Okay. So it's just the three guys and um, just so unique. It's almost like they're each soloists at different times, you know, super cool. This album was released May 12th, 1967, and it was all written by Jimi Hendrix, except Hey Joe was a cover that was recorded in the early 60s, written by Billy Roberts, who isn't, I don't think he's like a very well-known musician. Uh, Jimi became really popular early on in the UK, and he traveled there and was kind of discovered by some of the greats. So... This album did very well in the UK. It was number two in the UK and only went mm-hmm. to number five in the US. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was released a few months earlier in the UK than it was in the US. Um, and we'll get to that a little later because that, that definitely comes into play. Um, it sold to date over five million. The US numbers are, are were not as readily available, but over five million. Um, and as we discussed, this was their debut album, kind of, he got discovered and then boom, they were in. Yeah. So this album cover, uh, actually is three and there's one from the UK release, the U S release, and we found a French one and we talked about that in our midweek episode. So we're not going to talk about that now because it takes a lot of time, but if you want to hear that, go back after this and listen to our midweek upbeats and beatdowns episode where you can find a full discussion about all three of these covers. Our hardcore fans are patting themselves on the back right now because of course you've already heard this uh, <laughs> snippet on our conversation of album covers. Although maybe you are unsubscribed after that. I don't know. Well, it's so it's just another thing you don't have to go and do later today. Exactly. You've already done it. I'm really interested in the difference, not just in the cover, but the content of the two different releases. Yeah. Um, and I, I was able to find this really great uh, track listing that has has them both kind of listed 
side by side, you can really see the differences. I'm going to read out the track listing. I know we haven't done this in a while. I'm going to read out the UK track listing, but then I'm going to mention what the US one, the, the song that was in place on the US version, okay. if there was one, okay? Yeah. Okay, so we've got side one, Foxy Lady. In the US, it was Purple Haze. Then Manic Depression, same for both. Then Red House, but in the US, it was Hey Joe. Then Can You See Me? In the US, it was Love or Confusion. Then the UK had Love for Confusion, but in the US, it was May This Be Love. And then side one for both releases finishes with I Don't Live Today. Then on side two, starts with May This Be Love. But in the US, it was The Wind Cries Mary. And then the second track on side two is Fire for both, and third, Stone from the Sun. Then Remember for the UK, but Foxy Lady for the US. And the last track for both releases was Are You Experienced, which is like kind of trippy and experimental. Okay, so first of all, the reason for this, just before we get going, the three singles, or the first three singles rather, Purple Haze, Hey Joe, and The Wind Cries Mary, were released in the UK before the album came out. So they decided they didn't need to put them on the album because they had already been released as singles. (laughs) And I don't think, as you said, they hadn't finalized the US album yet. So so because they had already been, and when I say released, I mean like sold, like the discs, the singles were sold at physically at stores. Um, So they didn't put them on the album. But they hadn't been released in the U.S., so they put them all back on there and kind of shuffled around some of the other songs. And as you say, and I totally agree with you, like, you go you go to drop the needle on this vinyl, and the first song you hear is Purple Haze, you know, right in the U.S. You know, it's like just smacking your head, what is this? Right. Or you're in the UK and you put it on. You've already heard Purple Haze, but then you hear like. You know, you know, like, oh, man. Totally. Different. <laughs> like both songs are so kind of. But here's the thing in the US, you know, Foxy Lady was still on it. It was just on, on side two. Yeah. Man, I don't. So that means the U.S. version, you know, they both have 11 tracks, but um, the U.S. version never featured three tracks from the U.K. version. Um, struggling to pull them all out here, but which is which tracks never made it the U.S. version? Red House, uh-huh. Can You See Me, and Remember. So the American audience gets the hits, gets the yeah singles. But loses out on three different tracks. Yeah. That were kind of deeper cuts. You had to go by the import, I guess. Right. Um, and we should also note here that for most people who, you know, were, were like us, born well after uh, the vinyl was released, most of us, if we bought this album, would have picked it up on CD and all of the CD uh, reissues have a bunch more tracks on the american version adds all the songs that were left off and then a couple of others to make it us and, and i guess the the uh the uk version adds back in the um 
singles. So they, they both end up being 17 tracks on CD, uh, but again, slightly different order based on their original release. Right. Um, and just a fascinating, fascinating way to sort of build build out an album to say, well, everyone already knows the singles. Let's let's leave them off. Yeah, uh, I, I find that interesting, and I, and I yeah. Again, I don't. I haven't done enough research to really understand that, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. But it's very interesting. Um, yeah, really fascinating. Well, so I guess that begs the question of uh, what album are we talking about tonight? Hmm. Well, the one that I listened to, and although the the version that I listened to had, I think it was basically the U.S. release with the extra tracks thrown on after. That's what that's what Spotify has. So that's what I listened yep. to, and I think that's like a special uh, re-release where they just put them all together. That came out. Yep. I want to say like 2007 or something like that. Um, uh, 97 was the CD version with okay. the bonus tracks. Right. So that's what I listened to. I think it mimics the uh, that that CD uh, option. And I mean, I was familiar with I was familiar with Red House because that's on the the Woodstock live album. Because oh, he did Red House yeah. there, and it's like it's like a major blues jam song. So like yeah. they were just like just stretching that way out, and like the jam guys would have just been eating that up you know it's just like major blues um and and not as kind of out there there's a couple of tracks that get released on the uk and the u.s versions you know that are different than the original let's see it was 11 11 tracks initially so originally 14 tracks essentially that came out in the u.s and the uk right so we get three bonus tracks on the uh, CD released in 1997. Highway Child? 50... Child? Is that how you say it? Highway Child. Right. That one. Highway Child, 51st anniversary. Yes. Stone Free. So I'm kind of curious where those songs come from. Are they from the same recording period or are they just songs that got released some other point? In- they are the B-sides from the UK singles. Okay, so that's what those three tracks are, which makes sense. Yeah. The nineteen, so the so the CD does it does this. It does the US release. Yep. Then it does the three B sides from the UK singles. Right. Then it does the three tracks that were on the UK release, but not on the US. Correct. There you go. Yep. So that's cool. And that's the one we've been listening to on Spotify. Yes, that's what I've been listening yeah. to. And, um, you know, so that's, it's like when I've been listening to these albums, I've been trying to find even an, uh, an unmastered album if I can to really get that sure. same feel that I would have gotten if I was listening to it at the time, you know, I mean, the best has been to listen and I got to do this with our last album, which was Happy Road, actually listen to it on vinyl. And I'm going to try, if I can do that again, I will. <laughs> um, because yeah. listening to it on vinyl, just the just the richness of the sound, I was really surprised at the difference. Uh, yeah. Listening to it on vinyl made, I, I didn't expect that. So I'm going to try and do that again. But I've been trying to listen. So there was a few times where I kind of like, didn't necessarily stop listening to this album, but made a note, okay, this is where the US release ends. And now I'm listening to something else <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. just to know like this is what i would have heard if i had thrown it on 
uh, in 67. But cool to, I mean, again, like, this is such a different album if Purple Haze, Hey Joe, and The Wind Cries Mary aren't on it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like, (laughs) yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) Take away my Purple Haze, you know, like. (laughs) And The Wind Cries Mary has okay i guess we're doing tracks now because you got me going <laughs> the, the wind cries mary is like one of the coolest songs i think that i've ever yeah. heard it is just oh it's just i want to close my eyes and i feel i feel like oh man it's so good it's really nice um great yeah. guitar work uh great lyrics like really really compelling lyrics a bit of more of a laid back vibe than oh yeah most of the other tracks on the album, but uh, still with that it's it's not aggressive right. Still very apparent that Jimmy's on the guitar. It's probably on a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Before we move on from album details, though, I think it's okay. worth pointing out that the struggle to chart may have been due to the fact that we're talking about 1967. 1967 in music history includes so oh, many yeah. different things. Yes. Um, I believe that's Sgt. Pepper's, uh, which was at the top of the charts. Uh, the Velvet Underground, that very, very yeah. popular <laughs> yeah. album that we've already talked about. Um, the Doors were up there. I yep. think there was... Uh, uh, Pink Floyd album that was out around the same time. No, that was their debut, um, uh, Piper of the Gates of Dawn. So we're talking about I, uh, a band that I don't really have much experience with, but shows up on on this list in a little bit. Uh, Love, they had an album that came out in 1967 that year that is pretty renowned. Um, right. So just a ton of stuff that's like really changing music and a lot of popular success as well. Um, so for this to chart at all, I think is, is saying something about how well it stacked up against all those other historic albums that were really just crushing it and changing, um, changing rock and roll and pop music at the same time. Yeah, so true. And I, but this is the reason that this album only made it to number two in the UK because Sgt. Pepper's had nailed down that number one spot. So yep, I mean. If your debut album is number two only to the best album ever. <laughs> it should be number two then. Of the biggest <laughs> band ever. The biggest band. Like, he's an American. Right. And this is the Beatles releasing their seventh album. Right. And he's right there with them. Like, that's, that's notable. That's impressive. Yeah. And I think it says something about how quickly he had become so popular in the UK um, yep. uh, even without really, the singles uh, amazing really good point even without the singles people were going to get it were going to yep. buy it uh, they obviously didn't care too much that those tracks hey, maybe you know what maybe a lot of them already had it perhaps they already had those singles anyways yeah um, any We've talked about some tracks. Did you have personal favorites when you listened to? Were there tracks that you kept wanting to hit repeat? Um, I think the one that draws me in over and over again 
is the second track, Manic Depression. Mm. I don't know what it is about the um, the pace of that song. There's something really funky with the, the tempo that the drums are setting and the way that the guitar line walks along with the drums, but almost in like a half step. Uh, I don't know. It's really, really cool, the timing of it. And uh, it, it draws me in. And I'm trying to figure out if this is a song that's new to me based on... You know, having listened to this album for the last couple of months, uh, because it doesn't sound new. It sounds like a song that I've been listening to, you know, ever since the first time I listened to the Q107 Toronto's <laughs> classic rock station. Um, it's just really, I don't know, I like that one a lot. It, it, it drives in a different kind of way, and it, and it fits really well with some of the other songs around it. Um, as a bit of a change of pace, because I think Purple Haze and Hey Joe... Um, kind of have a similar vibe, so Manic Depression kind of breaks them up, at least in the American track list, and really, what I think is a really cool way. Well said. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I, I really like Wind Cries Mary as well, uh, and I really like Foxy Lady. I think I think that would have been a neat track opener as well. Um, it's amazing to me that there are only three singles on this album, because... I don't know. Like I said in the uh, the beginning of the episode, I, this feels like a greatest hits album. I I, <laughs> I just kept being surprised when the next song would come on, and I'd be right. like, "Oh, I know this one too." <laughs> uh, for an album that I'm I'm sure I have never listened to this album from top to bottom, it was awfully familiar. Yeah, yeah, I felt the same. Like. Maybe I've been somewhere where they had it on, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Or maybe it's just one where they like, you're right, on the on the radio, they've played a lot of these. Even some Fire. that weren't. Fire's a song we haven't oh, talked man. about. Oh, yeah, we haven't talked. Oh. It's on a lot, and it? It's so good. Yeah. I think that just that, yeah, there's something about the guitar lick throughout that. And, well, I, never, I think that chorus where the band kind of speaks back to him. I think it's just so well done as well. Yeah, the, the call and response is really neat. Yeah. And that's yeah. almost got a bit of that hippie vibe, you know, that <laughs> to yeah. it, even though it's very electric and right. not folky, but it's got that kind of that kind of gang uh, feel to it. Right. Um, that's a There's song. A whole lot. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, that's a song that feels like a lot more than three people. Yeah. Yeah, and much more than, um, like, I think when most people think of Hendrix, they think about classic rock guitar solos. That yes. song, especially, is really funky. Um, kind of the way the bass walks around. Uh, it almost feels like a jazz riff. Uh, three three really accomplished musicians jamming, really, um, uh, in a kind of really funky sense there. There's a, there's a rolling guitar solo in the middle of it but even in that solo which has a lot of sustained notes behind it is the bass like he's walking up and down you know mitch mitchell is just bouncing off his kit and uh it's oh yeah it's 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 just it's it's an adrenaline pack song start to finish it never really slows down yeah just just plowing all the way through man I'm getting more and more excited the more we talk about this album <laughs> it's just like 
I was it's so good. It's, this is I'm, exactly the kind I'm of Jack of album that I think deserves to be on this list. <laughs> Man, <laughs> oh boy, I do like Hey Joe. It's very dark, uh-huh. um, and has a lot of very kind of vivid images. I think it's a very and again, I'm going to go back to Forrest Gump, but every, all the songs on Forrest Gump, it's an American soundtrack. And, and it's supposed to kind of tell the story of America through a few decades, really, I think, is what that movie does. And the soundtrack does that, too. And I think it's a very American song. I think it kind of tells... It, it's, a, it's an image, of, it's a... What's the word? It's a caricature of a certain type of person and there's a lot of images that would be familiar to to americans not that nobody no other country has gun violence and no other country has domestic violence but i think yeah. it kind of it kind of paints that picture um yeah. and it and it wasn't written by hendrix it was written you know five or six years earlier by someone else but it kind of it's it's show it's uh, it's a bit of a social commentary as well and I know yeah. that's a little obvious, but it, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it makes me think it, it really, it really gets some of my brain juices going and it, it's, it's a pretty song, but it's a sad song and it's, and it's a, it's dark. Yeah. It's got, I, I don't know enough about it, but it sounds like it might be in a minor key. Um, oh, definitely. And the pace is a little bit slower than some of the other stuff that's around it. Uh, it works apparently pretty well as a lullaby. Um, <laughs> our two-year-old tonight uh, uh, hit a wall and curled up on the couch and fell asleep while I was listening to <laughs> this album and getting ready for tonight. And I think it was right around Hey Joe where I looked over and there's a nice pool of drool on the couch and he's zonked. So <laughs> it's uh, um, an album that yeah. It's a little bit droning because there's no verse and chorus. Yeah. It's and just the guitar one. just keeps circling back, yep. repeating itself. Yeah. It's one. It's one progression. Um, uh, it's. It's just. It's. It's a poem. It's like a poem. It's just. It's just a series of verses. The same verses. There's no verse, chorus, bridge. It's just verse, 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 verse. Which. Which is kind of. It is kind of lulling and kind of droning. Uh, but it's one that kind of stands out to me. It's different. Um, and I do really like it. It's certainly not one of the upbeat, catchy songs which are so easy to listen to purple haze yeah. um fire and then purple haze because the woodstock live album is so dear to me um of course he does the the wild and crazy rendition of the star spangled banner and as he's just you know blowing his mind out <laughs> during that song at the end and it's kind of it's just exploding everywhere he rips right into purple haze yeah. so when i hear purple haze i i'm also thinking of that star spangled banner uh, rendition yeah. um it i don't know how it was recorded but it sounds uh it sounds like it has the energy of a live performance on this album yeah, yeah. Uh, purple haze is a great example yes. of that kind of live feel um there's a slight echo on his yep. voice, I think. And oh, yeah. Yes. I think that uh, that conveys that almost like he's shouting across a club or 
Or, or Woodstock shouting out the yeah. massive yeah. crowd. Like, can, can you imagine you're the producer for this, for these tracks? And you sit behind the desk and, okay, you know, go for it. Try, take one. And he starts doing some yeah. of this stuff. And you're like, what is going on here? Like, this yeah. is wild. Some of the stuff he's doing, so innovative. I mean, okay. Just distortion alone. Like, no oh. one was playing with reverb on their guitar. No, and, and just the sound. <laughs> That's hard for us to imagine now. But oh, man, I, I know the uh, room. Yeah. I don't want to get into the, and I don't really claim to know, to get into the technique and the different stuff he was doing. But it's just, it's so out there but it's but it's accessible too it's not like so far out there that you can't listen to it maybe if we looked at just are you experienced that's really really experimental and it's not just a you know just a track you can listen to but put this beside sergeant peppers which is yeah i mean it's a little experimental and a little a little out there uh very popular but this is made like in the same year and it's like you know oh man yeah you know can you imagine right i mean eric clapton you know sees this guy for the first time and goes you know i'm not worthy <laughs> right like yeah right uh, right anyways. well and there's this piece of it too that i i think the drug culture um creates some really weird stuff but it's not always good mm. um <laughs> This has some psychedelic influence, but it's like uh, kind of incredible. Um, and you know, the, I, a lot of the door stuff, I f I find, you know, when I'm 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 generally a sober person, and when I listen to it, I just don't enjoy it all that much. I can be I can be like you said, not on anything right now, and just completely blown away by yes. the sound <laughs> that is coming out of this album. Um, it doesn't require me to be. Uh, you know, partaking of anything to experience its brilliance. Whereas I think a lot of the music coming out of the late 60s was uh, psychedelically influenced and also could only really be appreciated by people who were a little bit stoned. Sure. Um, this is this is not that. This is music no. brilliance uh, on display. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's very, very well put together, and even, like I said before, even with the experimentation, it's still accessible. It's not going to yep. be well-received if, then I'll use this in quotation, the average person can't grab a piece of it. And I think most people can. You know, certainly now, and even back in the day, uh, you can grab a piece of a lot of these tunes and really be able to sing along or, or, or not be just totally lost, even when, you know, we're drooling over Jimmy's uh, guitar stuff, which is just so out there and awesome. Well, that's the tracks. <laughs> um, and there's a few that to me are less memorable. Um, at least when I look at the, yeah, stuff, I can't remember them as well. Are there any that you would be fine if they were cut? Maybe may this be love. Oh, it's pretty. It's nice. Third, maybe third, it is. third stone from the sun. Third stone from the sun is one that I have a hard time. Yeah. With. Um, but then you could fill, you could still filter in and get eleven great tracks. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. No, it's it's, but start to finish, it's solid. 
He's very solid. Really solid, including the bonus stuff. Like, I, I, yeah. It, oh, geez. It took me until really getting to the notes part of our, our planning for this episode before I realized, oh, this is not a 17 track album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but because it fits well, you know, even with the B sides thrown yep. on there. Oh, yeah, they're not bad. Uh, they're not bad. It wouldn't have all fit on vinyl. It would have been a, a double album, I guess. But I've kind of talked a bit about, you know, just my attachment to some of the tracks from my live album I had, but not this album and not necessarily. Um, do you have any personal memories tied to the album or, or maybe some of the songs? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty new to this album. This is, I'm pretty sure the first time I ever listened to it from the beginning to the end was because of this project. Um, but there's so much familiarity with it. Uh, as we've already mentioned, it feels like something that I've known for a long time. Um, my one little sort of piece of, of tie, I guess, to Jimi Hendrix is that uh, my first guitar was a, a white Fender Strat uh, Squire guitar, um, which I'm pretty sure was, you know, put on the shelves to mimic uh, Jimi's iconic white Fender Stratocaster. Um, the difference of um, mine and his are plenty. Uh, his is, <laughs> of course, was from the 60s and uh, worth uh, way more than, than mine. Mine's also uh, a Japanese-built uh, Squire Fender Strat, and so it's uh, a couple levels down on the uh, sound quality and the build. But the other, I think, really important thing to, to point out when we're looking at Jimi Hendrix is that he was left-handed, and uh, right. he would... He, this was in an era, I'm assuming, before it was easy to get left-handed guitars off the store shelf. And so he would take right-handed guitars and just flip them upside down so the neck is pointing the opposite direction and restring them. Um, yep. And the way that a, a guitar is set up, there's uh, spacing in, on the bridge and the frets that is slightly different uh, as the notes go from low to high. And so he was playing... Uh, with the deepest sounding note, uh, the deepest sounding string, I should say, in the place of the highest sounding string because it had been right. strung uh, backwards, essentially. And uh, so there are a lot of uh, music scholars who suggest that the unique sound and tone that Jimmy was able to create was in part because he's playing the instrument uh, slightly outside of the way that it was originally intended to be played. Yep. Uh, and in a lot of the photos of the of him in this stage of his career, you can see uh, it's still a right-handed guitar. There's uh, you know a spot for the guitar strap to go on on both the top of the guitar where the strap usually connects and the bottom because it really is just this stock guitar that he's flipped around uh, and added yes. an extra slot for the the guitar strap to still connect for a left-handed player. It's really interesting. And then, of course, the pickups uh -huh. uh, wouldn't have... I don't think he flipped the pickups around. Right, exactly. So you're getting a different sound there. And the a other iconic thing you can yep. see is that, of course, the the, the two dial knobs mm -hmm. are at the top of the body. And the whammy bar is at the right. top of the body as opposed to the bottom. And the pick guard yeah. is all at the top, where usually that's, that's at the bottom. So it, it just... Yep it's part of that whole iconic look that he had of just flipping that thing over and so you know, fascinating it didn't, oh it's it's so cool um 
you know, which this just continues generations of people. I would say mostly men just drooling over Jimmy. <laughs> and and I remember I remember kind of being in that phase, just like, oh man, have you ever heard Jimmy? Oh, he's oh, he's the best ever. So great, right. you know, like and just kind of when you discover someone else who knows him, like and I feel like we've kind of done that. Yeah, here as well. Like, well, just, I remember when we talked about Blackbird. Um, you know, that was the, the sort of acoustic guitar song that was a bar that sort of you were striving to reach when, um, for those of us who started playing guitar and learned that you know it was more than just three chords. You know, you'd start right. to pursue some of those songs. Hendrix, I think, seemed like on this plateau way above that. That his songs aren't even stuff that people try and emulate because there's so much going on in them. And, uh, and there's a feel to it that just is so hard to capture, uh, partially because of the equipment, partially because of, um, the sixties sound quality, but partially, partially, I think just because of the genius of who he was and the way he was able to manipulate his instrument. Um, I, (laughs) I have this funny memory of uh, a friend in college um, he only made it one year in university because he spent most of his time uh, listening to classic rock guitar solos and trying to mimic them on his guitar. Uh, he'd skip class <laughs> because he was getting closer and closer with, with certain artists. And Hendrix was one of those that like, you know, he'd just sit for hours and, and listen and try and mimic back um, the sound that he was hearing uh, in a sort of obsessive way. Uh, but it, you know, it demonstrated for me as someone who didn't have his skill uh, just how much time was required to even get close to trying to imitate some of this stuff. You weren't by chance in an 80s cover band with this guy, were you? We did have a couple of 80s cover <laughs> band. Yeah, perhaps. Um, he, yeah, he is a great guy. He's from Japan, and he introduced me to a band called X-Japan that maybe we need to have a special episode about. But um, Yeah. I think we were called the shock monkeys. If my memory serves. I think I remember you telling me about you guys doing uh, Ozzy Osbourne's crazy train. Yeah. And I, and I said, wait, you have someone who can do that solo. Yeah. And you were like, Oh yeah, this, this guy from Japan, he can, he can do that. I was like, that's all he does. That's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very cool. That's cool. Do you still have your white Fender Strat? Um, it actually just came back to me after living at my parents' house for the last <gasps> almost two decades. Um, oh, wow. My mom was moving some stuff around and was like, hey, I found this in a closet. Do you still want it? I was like, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. So she brought nice. it down. Um, it's a bit more beat up than I remembered it. It's still got uh, <laughs> an MXPX Punkhead sticker on it. And um, yes, yes, it does. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I don't. I don't own an amp anymore. My amp was uh, the amp that I used to have. At least was stolen uh, from the church that we grew up at when there was a break in, probably a decade oh, ago. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And, uh, so I've got a I've got a cheap Fender guitar and no amp, so it sits in the corner still. Maybe one of these days, my kids will take interest and we can buy a cheap amp and make lots of scrunchy guitar noises. Yeah, teach teach them to play with their teeth. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, just don't, just maybe don't light it on fire just yet. <laughs> um, uh, what else we got? Preconceived notions. We've kind of gone over, I guess. We, right did, at the we did that. I've got a bunch of additional comments, but. Um, I, oh, I want to add one comment here and we've touched on this a bit. But every time I put this album on to listen to it, certainly the first time in this listening session, you know, in the last few weeks, I kept finding myself being surprised at how good it was. Mm -hmm. It's like I didn't expect that I'd listen to it for the third time this week and still go, ah, this is so great. (laughs) You know, like it just, it would just never stopped amazing me at just how much I enjoyed it. Like I already knew it was good. I already knew I liked it. I already knew Jimmy was awesome, untouchable yet. It was still just felt like it was new every time. Just so enjoyable. And that for me, I think is a sign of a really great album that you can just keep putting it on. And it's always, you're not going and that's enough. Yep. And yeah, there was a few, a few tracks that were my favorite, but still, I, I don't. I didn't find myself skipping them. Yeah, because it was all very good. So at the beginning, I referenced, yeah. um, you know, a bit of hesitation about Jimi Hendrix. It's not that I don't like his music. Oh yeah, but um, that kind of brings me to you said, you said you have some problems with Jimi Hendrix. So what does that mean? Yeah, I think I appreciate him most for the ability he has to absolutely wow uh, his audience. And I was thinking about it a little this week, and it made me think of the mandolin player from Nickel Creek. His name is Chris Thiele. Um, Incredible sort of musical virtuoso, has done musical projects with, you know, greats like Yo-Yo Ma. Um, He's really good in a band with other talented musicians because he adds so much musicality. But when he sets out on his own, his music shifts from like stuff that I really want to listen to, to just sort of like ear popping, amazing, amazing stuff. Um, And it's not necessarily music I want to put on all the time um, because I'm drawn to it for its exceptionality rather than it's um, uh, the the sort of simple genius of crafting songs. Uh, right. Bella Fleck is kind of like that. And um, mm. Victor Wooten, artists that oh, okay. I, I am just so impressed with on a musical skill level, but I rarely feel like putting on their albums because, um, I don't know, maybe it's there isn't much uh, hum along ability or or like they're not uh maybe they're just not poppy enough for my uh palette jimmy is kind of that way where i i put it on and go wow this is incredible and after a few songs i feel like okay i get it you are an amazing amazing guitarist um but but i don't find myself craving his music and wanting to go back um in the same way that i do some of the other uh, maybe more poppy artists. Like I, I think Sgt. Pepper's is a good comparison. That's an album where the songs just get embedded in my brain and I find myself humming them and singing along. Um, 
all these great tracks that we've gone through, I just love uh, experientially, but they're not, I know that next week I'll have forgotten that we spent all this time with this album. Um, I'll know, I'll remember that it was great, but it won't be humming the songs. I won't be uh, drawn back to them. And so that's my hang up. I, I think he is just this hmm. incredible virtuoso. And, and perhaps if his career had gone on um, beyond his tragic death, maybe he would have gotten into a groove where it was more, um, more poppy and more, uh, you know, more of a focus on songwriting rather than just blowing people away with his talent. Uh, right. And even as I say that I I hesitate because there are some really well-written songs on here. (laughs) So he was a great songwriter too, but I I don't know. Does that make any sense at all? Or does it just sound like I'm being snobby or something? (laughs) No, I feel like you're talking about the debate between ability and, and musicianship and the ability to play your instrument well versus the ability to write a really good song. Yeah, Because we've all like, you know, I know there was a phase in my life and, you know, when we discovered the internet and the internet started getting really good, it's like, hey, have you checked out this guitar soloist or this bass soloist or this, these guys who could, who were like crazy. And then maybe they release an album and it's just, it's not very good because they don't really know how to write really great songs that people really want to, like they are absolute masters at their instrument. That doesn't mean you can write a great song or that it's one that's accessible to people. Uh, yeah. So I, I hear that argument there. I guess, um, you know, I'm a little surprised after talking to you about how much we've loved the songs. <laughs> um, because I find that uh, one of the reasons I love this album so much is I get both of the things I love. I get crazy, insane guitar solos with sounds that I almost can't even understand alongside really cool lyrics and melodies that I can sing along to, that I can remember, and that a lot of other people know too. You know, that may stand next to your fire. Like everybody, you know, we it's easy to sing along to. And then after that is like some, he's just, ripping away on the guitar yep uh so that's one of the reasons why i find this really works and i think kind of solves a bit of that problem with the virtuoso that can't write a good song so yeah he's i get what you're saying he's not that he's not a virtuoso who can't write because he clearly can (laughs) yeah Uh, but Um, maybe it just feels like he's i I don't know i feel bad even saying this but maybe it feels like he's showing off maybe more than crafting a song at times. And I think I think you kind of touched on something in terms of development. I mean, he gave us three albums. Yeah. And um so many of the other artists we've listened to, when their albums appear on this list near the top ten, they're into their seventh, yep, tenth, eighth, whatever th- album. Most of them. Not all of them, but most of them. So you know, I'm sure this debate has been had and will be had thousands of times, but where would Jimmy have been as he matured as a person, as a musician, as a yeah. songwriter, you know, to go a little deeper? Yep. Of course, he left us with some amazing songs and just uh, an image that is so iconic. His skill was, you know, arguably unmatched. Um, 
he is one of the greats yet there was still so much left if he had uh if he had survived you know through that time so yeah i get it i think i disagree a little bit but i understand that yeah i I see where you're coming from i still think it's Um, a great album and an album worthy of being on this list um and we'll get to where it should be as we wrap this up in a little bit but yeah, I, I I think my hesitation is just because I do I do really think this is great, <laughs> and this deserves to be held up to say that it is great. Um, it's just my it's just maybe my one hang up with with Jimmy in general. Yeah, and and the one thing that we haven't talked about yet that we have to talk about is one of the most famous misheard lyrics of all time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, excuse me while I kiss this guy. <laughs> right exactly um so so much of a misheard lyric that it spawned a website of misheard music lyrics of all time oh, called man. just this guy.com um so you can go there <laughs> and uh and search by artist search by song uh you can search through sort of the funniest uh th- misunderstood lyrics of all time and um and it's, it's just endless. It's a website that I remember going to in college for some reason. So it's been around now for you know, probably 15, 20 years, maybe. Um, really? I've, I've, it's brand new to me. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know why I was directed there initially, but uh, probably for trying to figure out a lyric to a song. And, you know, in the early days of the internet, it redirected because I was typing in something someone else had misunderstood <laughs> and pointed me to this this website so yeah i uh i like the idea of this uh you know lyric that could be understood in multiple ways so much so that when i did a, a daily photo blog during seminary i chose to name it the sky is big in pasadena which i thought if you heard it really quickly, it could be this guy is big in Pasadena. Um, and yeah, it was mostly because of kiss this guy.com. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, the story is, you know, the, the lyric is, excuse me while I kiss the sky. Right. But apparently Jimmy during concerts would occasionally mix it up or say something else. (laughs) And there, there was footage found of him saying, kiss this guy intentionally. Um, And so the website, kissthisguy.com, which was started just because they thought that was a funny misunderstood lyric actually has a whole page about the song in which they explain, we put this URL up initially because we thought this was just a funny misunderstood lyric, but Actually, Jimmy has said this a time okay. or two. Oh, I didn't know that. In his okay. Performances. Um, so, yeah, misunderstood lyric and also a lyric he may have actually said, <laughs> um, which is uh, which just makes it a whole a whole other layer of interesting, yeah, and I, curious, and cool. I love that about songs and albums and music, kind of those stories, <laughs> yeah, kind of stuff. Oh, so so neat. Oh, I'm glad we didn't forget to totally. talk about that. <laughs> Because I definitely... Yeah, it makes me wonder if we need to do an episode sometime talking about misunderstood lyrics. Oh, there's some good ones. 
I'm sure that there are others that I could come up with of my own. Uh, I guess Brian Adams, uh, I got my first real sex change. (laughs) 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 That's really funny. Uh, But okay. If that, we don't want to, that will be another episode. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah. I I definitely, when that song is on the radio, I definitely sing, excuse me while I kiss this guy, just because it's so funny. Um, and I try and see if I can catch people off guard. Is this okay in 2019, which is the year we're in at the time of this recording? Is this album still relevant? What do you think? Oh, I think absolutely. Yeah, I th- I think just for his guitar virtuoso alone. I mean, you know, if someone wants to learn how to play electric guitar, I I think Jimmy's name is near the top of the list of like people you need to understand or be aware right. of if you're considering the electric guitar. There are times when the si- the sound on this album sounds like it's from another era, but as far as the skill and the talent, um, I think when we had Jason on and we were talking about Kind of Blue, um, he referenced that something about the lasting power of songs has to do with whether the instruments are still being yeah, played. Yeah, right, yes. Um, We've got an album coming up here uh, at number 30, uh, Joni Mitchell's Blue. Um, She plays a kind of funky lap uh, guitar. I forget what the actual name is of it. But it gives her an interesting kind of fret buzz that sounds very different than acoustic guitars do in popular songs right now. And it, it places her music in that, you know, late 60s early 70s era because we just don't use that style of instrument too much anymore Mm. jimmy's playing a guitar uh and playing a guitar with a guitar sound that he made popular and is still being used people are still trying to emulate it uh today um you know you can you can almost picture the fender plugged into the marshall head uh amp stack yeah um it's still it's still sort of what people are striving for in a certain genre of music. And so I think for that reason, it's, it's absolutely still relevant, even if it occasionally does place itself based on the, the sound quality or even the, the lyrical quality. Right. The cover might be the most dated thing about it. <laughs> oh, de- definitely. Oh yeah. I think the cover is the most dated thing about it. I think that the, the general sound of the album and the, I think some of the, the bass and drum sounds are more dated uh-huh. than the guitar. There's a bit of bass fuzz yeah, at times in there that just points to like a poor recording quality or something. I think some of this, the experimental sounds he makes, although they're innovative and brand new and people have mimicked them and continue to mimic them, I think some of those experimental sounds sound more like a psychedelic sort of thing, uh, like stuck sure. in the late 60s, early 70s. But I think if you are an electric guitar player, none of this is out of date or irrelevant to you. You're still using that. No. I, I totally agree with you with that. I think if you just took a, if you took away, you know, the other instruments and the lyrics, it's even more relevant. Um, yep. Not not to say that those are bad or that I don't want to hear them because I love them, but I think they they just sound more like the the times and the guitar playing has lasted a little longer in terms of being relevant. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. So how do you think Rolling Stone magazine did at placing this on the list? Well, it should be at least one higher. Definitely. <laughs> at least one higher. Uh, at least. Uh, yeah, I think we're getting into some of that dynamic that, that has come up so frequently about, you know, how much of a weight should popularity have? This album has three singles, but probably, you know, seven or eight songs that are on still heavy rotation yes. on classic yeah, rock for sure. stations. Um, that to me makes it great. Yeah. Even yeah. if it's, even if it's, um, you know, maybe not as, uh, popular as it once was it is still being played and played and played in a way that uh the dylan albums the stones album velvet underground album you know none of those can claim that kind of longevity in terms of their their listening power um so i would like to see this a little bit higher i'm assuming it's going to be bumped up on my re-ranking uh i i think you know there's nothing bad about being called the 15th greatest album of all time. I'm just surprised at some of the things they chose to put ahead of it on the list. If other albums on this list that are higher than this album are there because of certain things that the artist or a song on that album did. Yeah. Then why wouldn't this album be higher? Because of what this artist did for music and what these songs did. I don't get it. You know, if, if, uh, highway 61 is basically in the number four spot just because like a rolling stone is on it. Well then why couldn't this be higher just because of who Jimmy was and how he revolutionized playing a guitar or how Elvis. So, um, I mean, there's that argument. I think just in terms of listenability alone, this should crack the top 10. Um, I would put it ahead of, oh, just off the top of my head, probably four or five other albums we've listened to already, uh, at least. Yeah. So that, that right there, that puts it into the top 10. I, I would put it somewhere probably between five and 10. Um, yeah. It, well, and it doesn't really have, um, you know, for being a late sixties psychedelic album, it doesn't have too many tracks where you think like, well, they tried something, but that really flopped <laughs> no. in the way that the, the white album has a couple of tracks like that. Um, you know, even Abbey road, which we just finished listening to, there's a, fu- a few little funky things that you're like, yeah, you know, good, good for you for trying, but that probably could have been off. I don't get that sense with the 11 tracks that were on either of the original releases. Um, they're all pretty solid. Uh, in a very different way than, than a lot of the albums we've tackled so far from that yeah. same era. And one thing that we we didn't talk about earlier this episode, but I think it's important, the fact, again, that this is a debut release. You know? It's oh, yeah. a debut release. Oh, I keep forgetting that. <laughs> Me too, because, because it's like, well, isn't this the greatest hits? So this is only the second. The first we talked about was number 13 velvet underground and Nico. And there were, you know, there was much debate in our discussion of whether or not that should be quite so high. Our, our guest of course is a big fan of the album and he loved it and was so happy that it was there. We were struggling just in terms of the, the listenability, 
But again, with its influence, they did that on the first try. And then the other one we talked about, which wasn't a debut album, but in Miles Davis kind of blue, where they tried a totally new way of improvising and playing music. And they hardly took any, they didn't have any complete second takes. They did some pieces of tracks, but they didn't do a whole, okay, let's do that whole track again. It's like, we're going to try something to something new. Nailed it. First try, you know, got it. And (laughs) that's this album. First try. And it's the 15th great greatest album of all times. Okay. The Beatles have the best album, but it was their seventh album. Jimmy's like, "Ah, let's just do it right now. You know? (laughs) So I think that doesn't necessarily make it better, but I think it's, it's, I think it's worth something that like, you know, how many of us doing anything nail it the first time, you know, not yep. to say that Jimmy hadn't, you know, been playing for a few years or whatever, but in terms of releasing an album of music and it being this good and lasting this long, it's still being this popular um, over 50 years later is tremendous. So uh, was it sound logic? I say no. I say it's got to be higher, at least five spots. Um, I'll echo that. And, uh, you know, we'll see maybe when we do our re-ranking of 11 to 20 we'll kind of talk about where we we would put it but we'll we'll table that for now but yeah an, an amazing album yeah. and again i know i've said this about five times already but just so enjoyable to listen to again um and i think as we continue to listen to a multitude of albums and different albums i think this is going to be another one that i occasionally will see on the recently played list and want to want to put it on again a little bit because it's just it really puts me in a good mood i'm happy when i listen to it yeah and for all you new parents out there hey joe is a lullaby um just works yeah Yeah, as long as they they don't understand (laughs) anything about um about guns and gun violence yet yeah you're good (laughs) (laughs) exactly well said we want to thank you again for listening to sound logic And we hope you when you'll join us next time when we discuss our third Bob Dylan album. Oh boy. This is album number 16 and is Blood on the Tracks. And hopefully our good friend Chris Clements will join us once again to discuss his love of Bob Dylan and maybe our love too. Our love of Bob Dylan, not our our love with him. (laughs) I don't know if it's just because... Highway 61 set such a low bar, but I think uh, <laughs> I am enjoying the albums that come after it more each time. So um, not to give too much away, but I'm somewhat surprised at how much I'm enjoying this next one. So should be fun to talk about that with Chris and to try and figure out why, why we're drawn to certain elements of Dylan and not others. Well, whatever happens, I look forward to it. You bet. Thanks, my friend. Always fun. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next time. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.